This is Kincaid and Breckenridge, exclusively on News Talk 770 Radio, Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. Welcome back, Kincaid and Breckenridge. I'm Rob. That's that's Roger. I, I'm looking forward to this next conversation, actually. And I grew up in, in Edmonton, as you know. And uh, where, where I grew up, we, we weren't far from the River, uh, River Valley. So a lot of the, the memories I have from childhood is me and my friends and riding our bikes down to the River Valley. And there was a, a creek uh, that, that came off the river. And we would kind of follow the creek and, and go down and explore and just, just go on the bike paths and... I mean, we would do it all without parental supervision. Now, we weren't three years old doing this, obviously, but it just seems that that, that would, it just seems so rare today. I bet if I went down to that, that, same, that same area, if there's kids even living in that neighborhood anymore, uh, I, I doubt that's happening. I doubt they're doing that. I got a serious question for you because I know you got uh, two kids. Um, they play road hockey. I just assume your son plays road hockey. Yes. Okay, and when they're outside in the street playing road hockey... How many times do you go to like the window or the door just to check that everything's okay? Um, like what? Rarely. Rarely. Okay. Cause we yeah. used to play, like we used to play road hockey out in front of my house every single day that we weren't in school that when uh, there was no snow on the road. And I kind of just wonder how often my mom, like we'd play for hours. We'd play from sunup to sundown. And I just kind of wonder if my mom kicked back and read a book or if she was coming to the window every 30 minutes to check on us. Cause we did the same thing, man. No supervision at all. Just we, we ran wild all over our neighborhood without supervision and it was great. Yeah. So wh- why did things change? Uh, did we look back and realize that that was crazy and reckless or do we, we just kind of invented fears now more reasons to worry about kids and maybe, maybe aren't justified. There, there's gotta be a healthy balance, right? You don't want kids to be totally neglected and unsupervised. But you want to give them a chance to, to have some independence and to kind of get out and explore the world a bit on their own. And, and, and there, there's a lot that can be learned from that, I think. All right, let's bring our guest into this conversation. This is Clint Edwards, who is a blogger who blogs at uh, byclintedwards.com, also has a book called This Is Why We Can't Have Nice Things. Clint, welcome to the show. Uh, welcome. Yeah, happy to be here. Good stuff. So what's going on? Is this like, uh, are we tapping into something that, that you noticed in your own parenting about, about uh, how you let your kids run amok? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I wrote about this in the Washington Post just recently. Um, and so what happened is I took my, uh, I was at a yard sale with my son, and I picked up a copy of The Goonies, and it was on VHS, and we happened to still have a VCR, you know, don't judge me. And uh, we we put it in there, and we're watching it, and right about the time when the, the kids are going into the abandoned restaurant and uh, they're, they're going, where the criminals are staying, my son looked at me and he said, where are their parents? <laughs> and I'm like, well, you know, that's just kind of what we did back then. You know, in the 80s, we just kind of rode around. And he said, that's scary. <laughs> and it really was this reflective moment that how much our, my son's childhood has changed in comparison to mine. Because we more or less schedule all of his, uh, you know, activities uh, outside of the view of our home. Yeah, you know, it would. It's it's funny to think because I remember that movie well, and in fact, when I was a kid, I, I that was one of my favorite movies. And it would sure, seem I think it was everybody's. Yeah, I think it was. But you're right. I mean, I don't think my kids have seen it, and I bet it would seem really bizarre to them. That it, it's surprising that was well, the world really changed that much. That that's something that just seems so normal to to kids thirty years ago. It just seemed 
utterly bizarre and incomprehensible to a kid today. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I obviously it does, and and it's something that I've been putting a lot of thought into. Like, when did my entire neighborhood kind of sign on to this unwritten contract that we would kind of schedule everything? And and kids come over to my house, but they're within view of their homes. It's not like when I was a kid and my parents, you know, I got a bicycle and that was like a rite of passage. And my parents were like, okay, get out of here. You know, go have fun. And when the streetlights come on, come home. And that was kind of the way things worked for us. Um, But that's definitely not the case now. And even if I let my son, go play like that, uh, I don't think he'd be able to find a lot of kids to play with. And I think that we get a lot of suspicion from our neighbors, too, that we're not really yeah. caring for our kids the way that we should. Yeah. Where do that, is, are those neighbors, by the way, uh, other parents or just people in general? Well, we have, I mean, our neighborhood, I mean, I live in Oregon. Um, and so we have uh, it's a, it's a kind of a small rural town, but we do have, it's a neighborhood. It's a little suburb kind of a thing. And, um, there are several, there are a lot of kids in the neighborhood. I know I see them, you know, I, I'm aware that they're there, but they're not out playing in the streets like they were when I was a kid. And when we go to the park, you know, when I was a kid, we'd go to the park and there were a lot of kids that were unsupervised, but all the kids at the park have their parents there. They get together, parents get together and have little play groups and stuff like that. But everybody's pretty much watching their kids. And I think that there's a real fear of children either getting hurt or getting kidnapped. And this is a valid fear. I worry about it. I love my kids. I want to keep an eye on them. But at the same time, there's a lot to be learned from unsupervised play. Right. And let's drill down on that. I mean, and because there's a gulf between getting hurt and getting kidnapped. Um, and I think it's sure. like, it's the good dad who says, I'm going to make sure you don't get kidnapped. But I mean, there's some, some <laughs> question about the value of letting your kid skin his knee from time to time. Like, your blog is called No Idea What I'm Doing, a Daddy Blog which I like, but it kind of kind of exposes this truth that parents, for the most part, are just sort of trying it on for the first time. There's no real handbook for, uh, for that works for raising every single kid. And do parents sort of come at the act of parenting from, here's what I can't deal with, I can't tolerate my son or my daughter hurting themselves, instead of, um, you know, thinking about it from the experiences that, that they could probably best benefit from? I think it's a mixed bag. I think it's. I think some of it is that that you don't want your children to ever feel pain. I think that that's a prevalent feeling, and, and it's understandable. But I think that there's also a lot of people that um, there's there's a real fear that other parents are going to kind of judge what you're doing. There's a lot of neighbors kind of watching other people, and should you let your children, you know, enjoy that much free time? Should you let them uh, fall down and get back up without somebody, you know, being around? And, and I know I learned a lot from that. I learned a lot from being out, uh, learning how to skip rocks and go, I, I had a childhood very similar to yours. I was out by the river, you know, uh, swimming in the river as a kid, ride my bike around and stuff like that. And I learned a lot. I learned a lot of social um, courtesies. I learned how to make friends. I learned how to lose friends. Um, and I don't know if we're losing that in this, because of in the name of safety. Um, and that's really kind of the, the, the question that I don't know if we can really answer is are we, what are we losing by, by keeping these kind of tight restrictions on our children? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's something interesting you touched on because I, I think I've experienced that myself where, uh, you know, my, my son will be with his friends and then he'll come and ask and say, is it okay if we do this or, or go here? And on the one hand, I'm sort of thinking, okay, what do I personally think of it? But then I'm also thinking, okay, well, if I say yes, 
am I going to look like the reckless one because what if uh, the parents of all the other kids <laughs> think that's a crazy idea? So I'm sort of half thinking how other parents are going to view it and then half thinking uh, how I view it. And it's you're right. It's, it's the fear of what might happen to our kids, but it's also the fear of how we're going to be perceived, I think. Well, let me give you an example. There's a, there was one kid in my neighborhood um, who they moved just recently, but he more or less just kind of roamed the neighborhood. He'd knock on our door, come in, we'd feed him, and he'd hang out. So I think, mean, you know, he was nice. But I think a lot of people in the neighborhood saw him as kind of a troublemaker um, because he would kind of wander around and get into everybody's business. And people worried about his parents and his home situation. I did it first. And then after writing this piece and seeing a lot of the reactions, I kind of had to sit down and think to myself, he was just doing what I did as a kid. And I don't understand when that perception changed. I don't know why, but it's obviously very prevalent. I mean, even to the point that I'm in Oregon writing about this, the United States, and I'm talking to you in Canada. Yeah, that's funny to me because you also just described that neighborhood cat who kind of walks around, goes into people's <laughs> houses and gives somebody to eat. No, so yeah. I guess, you know, when I, when I read what you wrote in the Washington Post, though, Clint, I, I think about how, like, what the, what the toll is and, and, you know, what the cost is down the road. Because I think that you are, are sort of coming at this from an angle of understanding that you, Clint Edwards, the adult, are a product of you as a child and the childhood experiences that you had. And it's almost as though there's this uh, maybe concern or, or even just this question about, you know, what kind of adults are we producing in, for this generation? Sure. Yeah. And I, and that's a question I can't answer either. And it is a difference in generations, you know, like my parents uh, were raised very differently than I was. Um, and times change, you know, technology changes. Um, and so there's all these, you know, a lot of questions that come up like, well, my kids aren't out playing and getting scuffed and picking themselves back up. But at the same time, you know, my son teaches me how to update, um, you know, my, my laptop a lot better than I can do on my own. So he's keeping up in a technological world in a way that I have a hard time keeping up with and understanding. Yeah, we get a, you know, and it's funny that some of the texts we're getting here and, uh, you know, people sort of going through the same thing, you know, talking about their own childhood. Uh, this text here says, my poor son desperately wants to meet boys his age. He's, he's 10 years old. Uh, my son is too, so I can relate to this. They're in the neighborhood. Uh, they are in the neighborhood, but he won't go explore. He's he's worried about just going up and knocking on doors or what people are going to sure. think if he just goes up and, and knocks on doors. It, it can be tough, and I think it speaks to almost the changing neighborhood dynamic. Maybe we, we, we don't know our, our neighbors maybe as much as we used to. Sure. I mean, and there's a question of how much can you really trust the people that your children are hanging out with because and, – and some of this is – you know, I don't know all the statistics, but I keep kind of hearing ideas, at least reading through the comments and different messages that I've got about this, that statistically, at least in the United States, you know, our children aren't necessarily in all that much more danger than we were when we were kids, but we see it so much more. Well, probably less um, so, I would say. Maybe so. I mean, we're keeping tighter ties on them. Um, but at the same time, there's this question of, um, or these, these stories, I guess, that come up a lot of, of somebody that you trusted, and they betrayed that trust. Mm-hmm. And so then that makes you even more gun-shy. Right. But when you talk about the reaction you got, by the way, Clint, has, has, has it been mostly favorable? You got people out there who just think you're, you're crazy and you're, you're reckless. What, what's, what's it been like? I think most people have been seeing this as a nostalgia piece um, and seeing it as trying to understand how their childhood is different from the children that they're raising and trying to understand when we made this change, similar to the conversation that we have. 
Um, a lot of people saying, you know, when I grew up in the 80s, this is what we did. Or when I grew up in the 70s, we did something very similar. And now we don't. And trying to understand when or why this happened. Yeah, that's, right. how, that's how I read it, too. I, I, this just threw me back to, like, the stuff my dad used to do, I think, would be border, would be considered ne- negligence or abuse today. <laughs> like, he would, he would tell me, to like, walk down the riverbank a couple K. I'll, I'll drive down the road and pick you up. <laughs> like, no joke. Like, that, that's just an actual story. But I loved it. It's, like, one of the best experiences I've ever had. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Well, uh, we'll leave there. People can find your piece. It's in the Washington Post. Uh, We tweeted a link to it. Also, check out buyclintedwards.com and uh, the new book, This Is Why We Can't Have Nice Things. Clint, thanks so much for joining us here. Appreciate it. No, happy to. Thank you. All right. Clint Edwards, uh, blogger and author. And again, this piece up at WashingtonPost.com on uh, lessons from the Goonies and from the loss of unsupervised time for kids. I bet my mom rolled her eyes at my dad, though, and he told her that story or when i told my mom that story. <laughs> yeah that's that's universal that's timeless having uh wives rolling their eyes at their husband well that happens does it that happens uh, in your house too it still happens i'm not the only one every day. patrick thumbs up over oh, there wow <laughs> See, there you go some things never change <laughs> let's take a break right here we'll be right back it's kincaid and breaking ridge on news talk 770 I'm Roger. That's Rob. We have an average of one child each. <clears throat> well, it works out that way. Yeah. My sister is fun to watch parent because she's got four, right? And her oldest is like, oh, I'm going to get in trouble because I don't know if she's like 12. And the baby's like two. I don't even know. Anyway. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so anyway, the, but the thing is like when the, her oldest was a baby or a toddler and, it, and she would cry and stuff like my sister would get up and she'd go respond and see what's wrong and stuff. But by the time she got to her fourth kid, actually by the time she got to her third, right? Like you'd hear a cry and then my sister, she'd be talking about something. So anyway, the reason I like going to Flames games, the baby starts crying. Nope. Nope. That's not a painful cry. Okay. Uh, back to my story. And it's just so fun to watch. Right. But it's like, I think that, that, it's just like the, the evolution of, of just like watching her and, and her parenting technique and style has been fun. A lot of texts coming in on this at uh, 77770. Um, this one is interesting. It says, as a product of latchkey uh, kids growing up and overcompensating for their parents never being there. Also, the industry created around children, mm-hmm. propagating the idea that you're a poor parent if you aren't scheduling and spending money. Uh, pair this with fear-based media and voila, helicopter parenting. Yeah, there's probably something to that. And... You know, I, I think, you know, latchkey kids, there's, I mean, that's an actual thing. I think the, the, there are some kids, I think, uh, whose parents just really don't care what they're doing uh, and, and maybe are neglected. And so there, there is that. I don't, I don't think that's, that's a myth or that that's, that's necessarily healthy. It's just the pendulum swung too far the other way. And maybe it is a lot of parents who grew up feeling as though they were neglected and thinking, okay, I'm going to now overcompensate, as he says. Um, that, and I, you know, I, I want to be there for my kid. I, so I'm going to be the one to play with my kid. I'm going to take my kid places. I'm always going to be there, but there can be too much of that. Right. So it is, I, I think it's a pendulum swinging too far the other way thing. What, what about that idea though, of like an industry created around children and like media portrayal of, of parenting? Because there, there's something that, that I notice, and I wonder if it has like a, a, a subliminal effect, right? But, but you, if you see the, the TV commercial or the comedy movie where like the baby has the bowl of spaghetti over his head and he's all messy and stuff. And it's always as though like that's presented as this wouldn't have happened if you were paying attention. Like moms and dads, you turn your back and look the kind of trouble your kid gets into. Whereas maybe it's because I don't have kids. I see that as like how awesome it would be 
for a two-year-old to dump a whole bowl of food on top yeah. of yourself. And like the adventure that that kid had, right? But does it have like a subliminal message of saying, you got to watch these things all the time to make sure this sort of thing doesn't happen? You know, this one's interesting, too. It says, I was the first to let my son, third grade, walk home from school. As soon as I did, others followed. Now there's a gang of them. A, a good gang, not a, a bad gang. gang. I, I let him get Slurpees with his friends. Once one parent does, uh, others follow. Maybe there's something to that. Maybe, again, it gets back to that perception. Parents don't want to be seen as, as bad parents, uh, but maybe they would like to let their kids do so. Maybe it just takes one parent to say, okay, I, if my kid wants to go to the park by himself or go to the store by himself, walk to school by himself, I'm good with that. And then other parents say, oh, okay, whew. all right. <laughs> so finally someone is the first to do so. Yeah, okay, then I'm, I'm okay with that too. So it, it, maybe it just takes one to sort of, you know, set the, the, the chain in motion. I like this, uh, this text here. Somebody said when my wife was six years old, you still uh, had to go to the store to buy cigarettes for her mom. Mom would give her a note. Like not only would you, your six-year-old <laughs> be allowed to roam the neighborhood, go <laughs> Give your mommy some smokes. Yeah, I don't know about that, but <laughs> maybe maybe there the point are of the story is how much yeah. things have changed. Yeah, that's certainly that. Yeah. Indeed. Hey, let's take one more quick break here. We'll wrap up this hour. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk seven seventy. Happy lunch. I'm Roger. That's Rob. As Rob pointed out, it's Friday the thirteenth. It's a, a really good and reasonable excuse to be fearful of everything today. Uh, well, uh, it's all right, because I, I knocked on wood when I got up. And oh, you covered it? Threw some salts on a black cat, and uh, <laughs> I don't know, is that good, is that good or bad? No, I broke a mirror, but then I I uh, threw it in a wishing well. <laughs> oh, it's good. You're on a good streak, then. Yes. Are you supposed to throw the black cat over your shoulder uh, under a ladder? Uh, oh, boy, goodness. So I don't know. Knock the new shoes off over the table. Over my pig right now. But why is it? I mean, my grandmother was deeply superstitious, by the way. Like, but a lot of people really are. That's yeah. the thing. I, I mean, to a lot of people, there is legitimate angst around Friday the Thirteenth. I mean, you know, still to this day, we build buildings. There ain't no thirteenth floor. Mm-hmm. Although, well, I guess technically there is, but that's we the, pretend it's not. That's the Mitch Hedberg joke. You people <laughs> on the fourteenth floor, who are you trying to fool? That's right. The uh, my grandmother, she she wouldn't. We used to, like, hide around the corner when she was coming down the stairs so that we could, like, run past her on the stairs. Apparently, that's bad luck. Handing someone a knife is bad luck. There's but a lot of superstitions around us. Even this one, Rob, the, the, the clinking of glasses when you're making a toast, when you cheers, superstition. Okay, but wait, yeah, it's so weird. Where's it come from? I mean, if I'd run around two days ago saying, oh, my God, everybody, it is Wednesday the 11th, people would look at me like I was crazy. And then two days later, everybody's doing the same thing, but it's it's somehow legit. It's like, oh, well, okay, yeah, Wednesday the 11th, that's silly, but Friday the 13th, that's yeah, that's frightening. Well, was there some murderous goaltender traipsing about the woods last <laughs> Wednesday? That's what I ask you. Is uh, it safe to go into the basement in your panties on Wednesday or not? That's a good point. That is a good point. That's actually. a good, a good, good rebuttal. Well, someone who writes about this stuff uh, joins us on the line. Benjamin Radford, deputy editor of Skeptical Inquirer Science Magazine, also a research fellow with the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry. He's got a bunch of books, including his latest, which is called Bad Clowns. We could talk about that, too, <laughs> why we're scared of clowns. Uh, ben, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks. Great to be on. You've written about this many times. Uh, to, yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure, you still get asked the question uh, every year, every time this this happened. Why, why is Friday the 13th something that we're, we're fearful of? 
Well, you know, it's fascinating. Uh, you, there's there's lots of different angles into it. One of them, of course, is that it's uh, when you look at it from a psychological point of view, um, part of it is that it, you can trace it back to people's uncertainty about the world, right? I mean, we, we you know, we're, we're, for most of our lives, we're subject to, to things beyond our control, you know, the weather or other people or traffic or, I mean, there's so many things in our life that, that we can't control and we sort of feel helpless in the face of. And so superstitions sort of serve a purpose in that uh, if you believe in them, then they sort of, they, we, 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 we believe them because we think that they can somehow tip the scales in our favor, right? There's this, there's this idea that it's a little bit of an edge, right? So if, you, if you're worried about bad luck, if you're worried about, you know, something bad happening to you, that there are these prescribed things that allegedly handed down from generation to generation, grandmother to grandmother, um, and so on, that can, you know, can give you an edge uh, in, in the big bad world. Yeah, when I look at superstitions, though, like individually, some of them seem to have some like practical application. Like yeah. an example of that is don't go under, uh, don't walk under a ladder. I could see some, like, you know, paint falling on you or, or right. someone falling. Advice all around. <laughs> yeah, right. So it's not so much you shouldn't do that because it's bad luck. It's that, you know, going the other way is probably just as easy and, and better. But there's some no, stuff, you're, too. you're absolutely right. I mean, and that's one of the interesting things about superstitions is that many of them are very practical. It's not it's not superstitious. It's just good advice, right? Uh, don't break a mirror. Well, how about not break a mirror anyway? You've got to buy another mirror. <laughs> yeah, you know, forget about the Seven years of bad luck. And the same thing with uh, with opening an umbrella. I was I was researching this a couple of years ago, and there's of course the the superstition against opening an umbrella indoors, and um and there was some research in terms of why that might have come about, and there are a couple ideas. One of them was that um, it's sort of subverting the, the natural order of things because of course if you're inside, then you don't need an umbrella, so you don't you don't actually need it until you're outside. So it's it's there's sort of a inherent moral to the story, which is don't use something until you need it. And also, uh, uh, the, the, in the, if you look at the history of umbrellas, the earliest umbrellas, which is, of course, where the, or the superstition would have come from, they were actually a bit dangerous. They had these, they weren't these modern, uh, you know, self, self-opening ones. And uh, many of the umbrellas, they could actually cut your finger if, uh, because of the opening mechanism. And so it, was, it, so it was sort of a prohibition against, don't do this inside where you don't need it if you're going to risk cutting your, cutting your thumb with this, <laughs> this, you know, this wonky umbrella mechanism. Only use it when you're outside when you actually need it. Yeah, and it's funny because I, I think we, we all have our, our things. Like, uh, I won't point out any of mine, but I'll point out one of my wife's instead. Uh, when it's the end of the month, like it's the last day of the month, and I'll want to turn the calendar to the next day so I can see what, what awaits. What's the point of looking at a calendar when all the days of, uh, are over? But it's like, no, it's, like, it's bad luck, she says, to turn the calendar <laughs> until it's actually that, that month. And but, but, I mean... All suspicions basically are, they're, they're no different than that, right? Why should the number 13 be unlucky? Why should it be unlucky to not knock on wood when you say something potentially bad? And, and all these things, it just seems so irrational, yet we all do it. 
Yeah, well, I, you know, certainly, certainly a lot of people do it. Uh, you you find that superstitions tend to be overrepresented, for example, in gamblers uh, and sports, and you know, they're very common in athletes. I mean, there's many oh, tennis yeah. players yeah. Uh, who, um, for example, they, um, uh, I think it was uh, Agassi or Nadal uh, refuses to walk to touch the as, as they change uh, courts. Uh, he won't t- he won't walk on the lines, right? So as, as you're doing the changeover, there's just certain rituals that that athletes do, uh, you know, and you see this in in all sports and it's interesting because there actually can be a real effect uh, and that's because if you there it's essentially a version of the placebo effect so if you have an athlete who believes that they perform better they run faster they they perform better in some way if they're wearing a red shirt or if they have a lucky coin or whatever it is or they're wearing their grandmother's ring around their neck then that that the very presence of that belief may actually help them to perform better because they're they don't have the they don't have the 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 unease or the 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 lack of confidence like you know oh, oh if i hadn't done that oh my god maybe i'm not going to do so well so there's a really interesting twist to it where in some ways some of these superstitions can actually have an effect yeah that may be the case but it was proven in 1994 that if you take a different route to uh, the baseball field every day uh, you have a hitting streak uh, it gets it gets preserved <laughs> That was proven by me, I'll have you know. Uh, no, but you're right about gamblers, too, right, have, have a, a load of superstitions. Uh, for example, it's widely known amongst gamblers that $50 bills are uh, unlucky. Uh, do we have any idea where these superstitions generate? Because when you're dealing with, with gamblers and, and, and poker players, I would argue, even more specifically, the superstitions are, like, universal. They're, they're super well-known. And outside of that community, it's like... Oh, that sounds like the craziest thing. But, I mean, do, do you kind of know what I'm getting at? Like, it is crazy, but it's just that it's almost, it's common. It's like lingua franca for uh, poker players. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, some of them trace back, you know, many centuries. Uh, and, of course, you know, superstitions come and go. So, for example, at one point in, in medieval Europe, for example, uh, and, and later it was, uh, it, was, um, it was considered bad luck to have a mirror in the room of a dying person. So, for example, if your grandmother or your, or your aunt or somebody, uh, an elderly uh, relative was dying, you would cover the mirror uh, in their room. And the idea was that what, what would happen otherwise is that they might catch a glance of themselves in the mirror and see death behind them. And so the mirrors would traditionally be covered. Now, of course, that doesn't happen these days in hospitals and elsewhere. And so you see that the, the superstitions, regardless of their origin, sort of come and go depending on, on whether the culture is embracing them or not. So it's uh, and, and, you know, in many ways, we don't know exactly where where some of these superstitions come from. I mean, one point, uh, in many places, and even today, it's unlucky for a woman to walk onto a boat. Uh, and fishermen, many many fishermen, they, 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 you know, don't don't have a woman on the. And of course, that's it, not only is it sexist; it's just bizarre. That's well, a shrewd um, husband but, move, though, right? Oh no, honey, we can't come fishing. Exactly. It's bad luck. Exactly. <laughs> but no, it, it's interesting. So I mean, you know, it, it is. Um, you know, the, not a lot is really known about the the spread of superstitions within uh, within you know smaller communities such as poker players. Except in so far, of course, is that there is a sort of peer pressure, right? There's this notion that you know if everybody within this community knows that you know if you want to be lucky, then you know do this you know wear wear you know one thicker sock or whatever it is, then then you know this is actually one of the keys to understanding why superstitions persist, is that in most of these cases there's no downside right there's no cost you know if you believe that carrying a lucky coin in your in your pocket 
will will improve you know your your luck or your wealth there's no downside there's no harm in doing that and that's why many superstitions continue is that is that even though in many cases it's you know you can clearly prove it doesn't work i mean right if if wearing a red shirt made you hit lottery when you bought the ticket then everybody would know that and they'd wear red shirts right, right. um but so it, instead it's a case of where People are, they take a, they adopt a better safe than sorry attitude, right? They may not totally believe in it. They may not totally say, oh, you know, this is definitely going to do it, but they don't want to risk not having that edge if it might help them. Well, it's funny. It's like in the NHL playoffs. Uh, there's the Western Conference trophy and the Eastern Conference trophy. And in hockey, anyway, it's become bad luck to touch that trophy as though somehow it curses your chances of, of winning the Stanley Cup. But every single year, both teams do it. And every single year, one of the teams who didn't touch the trophy doesn't win the Stanley <laughs> Cup. It gets disproven every single year. More evidence do you need, right? <laughs> That's awesome. But what about the number 13, though, in particular? Where, where does that come from? Well, there's a couple ideas uh, about that, and uh, it's not crystal clear. Obviously, you know, in many of these cases, the uh, the superstition dates back uh, centuries or millennia, and so we don't know exactly where it comes from. There's a couple of theories. Uh, one of the most common ones is that uh, it dates back to the Bible um, and the the notion that uh, around uh, around the, uh, the the table. Uh, of course, the Da Vinci painted and elsewhere, you have the 12 disciples, and the idea was that the, the 13th was Judas. Uh, and so the 13th person at the table was the, was the evil one, the betrayer. Um, you also see, for example, uh, dating back to Geoffrey Chaucer, if you look at the Canterbury Tales, uh, he also refers to Friday the 13th as being unlucky. Uh, and so in, in the case of Friday the 13th specifically, it's an interesting confluence between a day that was already believed to be bad, uh, so there, there's, a, there's a whole separate part of folklore that says that Friday is not a good day. <laughs> of all the seven days, Friday is the, is, is the worst day. Of course, I'm thinking, hey, you know, it's the day before, before the weekend, so it's a great day for me. But early, early incarnations were that Friday was a, was a bad luck day. And then when you put on top of that the, number, the unlucky number 13, well, you're just doubly screwed then. Uh Here's something that's interesting to me, though, Benjamin, and um, this will be kind of my, my, my last uh, foray into the conversation about superstition, but we have some that we, we've preserved. Like, we still, to this day, have these superstitions around that we probably don't even recognize as superstitions. And the, the only one I can really think of is blessing somebody when they sneeze. And I'm just sort of wondering if there's, like, more common superstitions that we are just so commonplace we don't even recognize them as superstitions. That's an excellent example, in fact. Uh, as you may know, that the origin of that is the belief that uh, when a person's mouth is open, that spirits can enter their, the evil, evil entities and spirits uh, can enter their body uh, at this moment of weakness when, they're, when, they're, when they literally don't have control of their bodies because they have an involuntary reflex. And so that was the idea behind not only covering your mouth, but also blessing somebody uh, to prevent an evil spirit from entering them. Uh, and, and you're exactly right. In many cases, people aren't aware of the superstitious origin of that. Uh, here in New Mexico and in many places around the world, there are many windows that are, that are ringed with blue paint. Uh, and a lot of people, you know, it's just sort of a, a stylistic thing. But in fact, uh, blue is considered a, a heavenly or celestial color. And the idea is that if you if you paint the the outside of window blue, it prevents evil from coming into it. And so, again, you see people who move into a house; they don't really pay much attention to. It. Oh, that's kind of neat, and they don't realize that there's a superstition built into the house. 
All right, Ben, we got to leave it there. Unfortunately, maybe we'll have to get you back on and talk about clowns, but the uh, the book is out now. <laughs> it's called Bad Clowns, uh, more at BenjaminRadford.com. Thanks so much for joining us here. Appreciate this. Great talking to you guys. All right, take care. Uh, ben Radford, he's uh, deputy editor of Skeptical Inquirer magazine, also a uh, research fellow with the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry. Not a senior fellow like like me, but uh, still pretty good. Uh, his latest book is called Bad Clowns, and again, more at BenjaminRadford.com. All right, um, let, Let's. How long's the break, actually, Tim? I mean, I. For, okay, let's do this. Um, we're going to play this audio now of Justin Trudeau and uh, Premier Rachel Notley speaking from Fort McMurray. Uh, so go ahead and, and tee that up, and we'll figure out the commercials in a minute. On behalf of the the people of the province, uh, thank all of you for for the work that you've put in. And I know some of you are a little bit tired, and uh, I know it took a while. To, or that you know we've got good food for you, and 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 that's all good. But you're not at home. You're here, and thank you for that. So um, I'll hand it over to uh, to uh, the Prime Minister. Thank you, Rachel. And yeah, how about a huge, amazing round of applause for Rachel? Uh, the Premier has been exceptional. Uh, from our very first conversations uh, on this, uh, uh, last uh, middle of last week, uh, we have been working extremely closely. She's been keeping us in the loop. We've been making sure uh, that whatever is needed, uh, you know, through her, through uh, directly, uh, uh, all of you, uh, has been has been responsive. The one thing I have to say, though, is is. The perspective, I mean, I was uh, not able to get here until now, so I was following all the updates and watching the images on TV and, and just seeing the scale and the scope of this. I don't think Canadians yet understand what happened here. They know there was a fire. Uh, they're beginning to hear the wonderful news that, that so much of the town was saved. They don't yet understand that that wasn't a fluke of wind or rain or, or luck uh, that happened. Uh, this was the extraordinary response uh, by people such as your, yourselves. Uh, the work you did to save so much of this community, to save so much of this city and the downtown core and so many homes was unbelievable. And it really is a reflection uh, not just of your extraordinary uh, capacities and training, uh, but uh, to your courage and your will. Uh, the incredibly long days, uh, the, the, the backbreaking and sometimes heartbreaking work that you were doing, uh, the extraordinary presence you had uh, that uh, reassured everyone watching, including the Prime Minister, that everything was being done uh, here was just amazing uh, to see. And in the stories that will be told uh, of in the coming uh, days and weeks of, of heroism, of valor, of courage, uh, of astonishing uh, feats of, of coordination and collaboration. The number of different groups and agencies who are working here together is an unbelievable testament uh, to more than just your own individual strengths, but to our strengths as a community, as a province, and indeed as a country. One of the things that uh, uh, I, I had the opportunity of meeting the, the president of Poland last week, who, uh, like so many uh, different world leaders, really expressed uh, their their support, their offer of help, their uh, their thoughts for us. Uh, but 
He specifically said, look, it's a testament uh, to the strength of your government uh, that the evacuation happened the way it did and that everyone is safe. And I said, listen, I'll, I'll take a little bit of credit for that that I don't deserve. Uh, I pass it on to uh, the province that deserves a lot more uh, and to the emergency services that deserve a hell of a lot more for the way it was coordinated. But we also have to recognize... Uh, the, the individuals themselves, the entire community uh, mobilizing, evacuating under extraordinary guidance from all of you, but that that wasn't uh, the kind of chaos uh, that it could have been, uh, once again goes to the strength and the heart of Canadians. Ce qu'on a pu accomplir ici pour démontrer la force de notre... All right, listening to Justin Trudeau, uh, now he's seen the devastation in Fort McMurray and uh, holding this media available with, pre- with Rachel. Pre- with Rachel, yeah, I guess. <laughs> We're just going on it. <laughs> They're buddies. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. Parse that as you will. That, that to me, was just a very peculiar address. Uh, They're going to do something more formal yeah. at 3.15 this afternoon. That was uh, as he just kind of wrapped up his, his look at, at Fort McMurray. Yeah. Uh, I, I, maybe I should bite my tongue a little bit here, but that just sort of seemed weird to me. I was uh, talking to the president of Poland, and he told me, hey, man, it's a testament to your government. And I said, well, I'll take a little bit of credit for that. But uh, Yeah, it was weird. weird. Anyway, so uh, more on that through the afternoon. Uh, maybe we'll uh, have some more thoughts. Uh, we should go do a podcast here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's true. We'll probably spill those thoughts all over that podcast. You can get that podcast on iTunes or at com. Thanks very much for listening. Uh, the Afternoons with Daniel Smith is after the news to 1230. Roger Kincaid and Rob Breckenridge, weekdays starting at 930 a.m. on News Talk 770 Calgary.